All right, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're continuing a verse-by-verse study through this great epistle of the uh, book of Ephesians. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus and warns them about participating in spiritual warfare. And so we're on part two, if you will, of the pieces of armor. There's six pieces if you total them up. Some say seven if you add the idea of praying at all times in the spirit in verse 18. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is looking at the second half of Ephesians 6, 14, the breastplate of righteousness. But just to kind of get us going this morning, we'll read verses 10 through 14 that we'll focus our whole time on the breastplate. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you, and I pray, God, that you would allow us to understand this morning what you mean by what you wrote through the Apostle Paul about the breastplate of righteousness. God, help us to know today that we are engaged in a war in which you have already won through the cross, and yet you've called us to fight daily battles, engaging with the enemy in spiritual warfare. Help us to take this text seriously, help us to live soberly, and help us to walk in the Spirit on this day that we might be overcomers through Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, living life according to the Bible will inevitably lead to conflict because many in this world oppose the truth. In this world, Christians standing for the truth of God's word will be attacked, they will be scorned, and they will be persecuted. Sometimes the battle that comes from people may come from themselves, but sometimes it comes from the right hand of the devil and his minions. We fight a battle today that we have already won in Christ, and yet every day is a daily conflict. We must be ready to fight. We must be ready to defend the faith. We must be ready to stand our ground in the strength of his might. Paul, in his letter to 1 Timothy, calls this the good fight of faith. That's what we're to be fighting, the the good fight of faith. The good fight of faith is also commented on by J.C. Ryle, who writes about spiritual warfare, quote, let us settle in our minds that the Christian fight is a good fight, really good, truly good, emphatically good. We see only part of it, yet we see the struggle, but not the end. We see the campaign, but not the reward. We see the cross but not the crown. We see a few humble, broken-spirited, penitent, praying people enduring hardships and being despised by the world. But we see not the hand of God over them, the face of God smiling on them, the kingdom of glory prepared for them. These things you are to yet have been revealed. Let us not judge by appearances. There are more good things about the Christian warfare than we see. Close quote. I think what J.C. Ryle is hitting on upon there is that the idea that we are at spiritual war. And as we're fighting, many times we see broken warriors coming back, as it were, from the front line. And we get this sense in our culture that somehow the devil is overtaking us completely and entirely. And what Ryle writes is so true there that we got to realize that we don't always see all that's going on. There are many things that God is doing in the heavenlies that we don't always see. And I think that's illustrated excellently in 2 Kings chapter 6. Turn there with me, if you will, and let's read this account of Elisha, the prophet of God, who stands firm against the armies of Syria as they come to attack. And let's just be reminded this morning of how what's true and what's happening is not always revealed to us in the present time. Second Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 8, we read this. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, 
he took counsel with his servant, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. Now, those first two verses are just simply saying the king of Syria would make a special plan of attack against the armies of Israel. The man of God, Elisha, would be warned supernaturally by God where this attack would take place. He would tell the king of Israel, beware that it's going to happen in this area, and then they would go and defend that oncoming attack. Verse 10, and the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him, thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So in other words, this happened on multiple occasions where God intervened through the prophet Elisha warning where the oncoming attack was. Verse 11, and the mind of the king of Syria, that would be the enemy, was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, the king of Syria thinks there's a mole in his army. He thinks somebody is tipping off the Israelites of where this attack will be. So he's asking his commanders, what's going on? Why, why do they always know exactly where we're going? Verse 12. And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So in other words, Elisha had ears in the bedroom of the king of Syria through the sovereign knowledge of our God. And the king of Syria must have been a little bit spooked, thinking like, oh man, none of our guys are given this information. This is the spiritual ability of the man of God, the prophet Elisha, to know exactly what's going on. And so he wants to take Elisha out. Verse 16, he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he is going to dispatch a secret group of Navy SEALs to take out the man Elisha. Verse 14, so he sent their horses and chariots. Yes, it wasn't that secret. He sent horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So they now have Dothan, the city where Elisha is, surrounded by the enemy. Verse 15, this is the part you're familiar with. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Obviously, he's afraid of the armies that belong to the Syrian government who have come in to attack this city of Dothan. What in the world are they going to do? Verse 16, he said, that would be Elisha, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What an incredible story. It goes on to talk about how Elisha leads them into the capital of Israel, northern Israel at the time, Samaria. They basically have to, to get, lay down their arms, and they return home to Syria to not fight again. But the key of this point of the illustration is sometimes we don't see as we ought to see. Sometimes we only see by the eyes of sight and not by the eyes of faith. And sometimes we think that we're engaged in this war alone and we forget that we have the armies of the host of heaven that surround us as believers. And while we may not always uh, seem to be winning at every front overall, we know we are declared victorious. We are the conquerors. We will overcome. It's through Christ and his blood on the cross that enables us to have ultimate victory in salvation. My friends, may God open our eyes so that we can see that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. God is the victor, and we walk victoriously when we walk with God. At the same time, we must take this spiritual warfare with the devil seriously by being wide awake and spiritually alert, our thinking must not be out of line, cluttered, muddled, or self-centered. Because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Did you know that the, that the lion typically roars when his prey is already caught or at the moment of pouncing upon them? 
He doesn't roar as he's at a distance coming to them because if he did, it would give away his location and his prey would have more chance to get away. The, the devil, like this lion, is smart and a stealth hunter looking for someone to destroy. And the Bible says we must resist him. The word resist is a military term that speaks of taking a stand against our enemy. That's what we've been called to do in this text of Ephesians 6. We are to stand our ground, for the high ground has already been accomplished through the salvation of our Lord. We are to defend that ground by the armor of God. All of the verbs in the passage minus verse 10 where it says be strong, that's a present tense. The rest of the verbs in the passage are in the aorist tense, which again give the idea that it's something that's been done in the past and it's something that has ongoing effects. And so when you came to Christ, when you got saved, God put the armor of his power on you. You now have a responsibility to stand firm, resisting the devil, putting on the armor, and every piece of the armor counts. In fact, it was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote this, quote, If you are to be a soldier in this army, if you are to fight victoriously in this crusade, you have to put on the entire equipment given to you. That is a rule in any army. And that is infinitely more true in the spiritual realm and warfare of which we are concerned. Because you are, your understanding is inadequate. It is God alone who knows your enemy and knows exactly the provision that is essential to you if you are to continue standing. Every single part and portion of this armor is absolutely essential. And the first thing that you have to learn is that you are not in a position to pick and choose, close quote. Again, the emphasis of we must take up all the armor of God. And so last week we looked at the belt of truth and we learned that we are called by God to gird up our loins with truth, that we're to take the hem of the garment as it were and to bring it up and tuck it into our belt so we are poised for aggression, that we are ready to fight and that we're not tripping over our of our garment, but rather we're focusing our minds on the word of God and kind of continuing that idea of focusing on the truth. Next, we see that we are to be putting on the breastplate of righteousness, or more specifically, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, it's an aorist participle, which just simply means it's supporting the idea that we're standing firm, having put on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's something that's already owned you if you're a Christian. You cannot take it off. You cannot remove it for positionally. You are righteous in Christ. And so what we want to do this morning is look at a little bit deeper this meaning of the breastplate of righteousness. And so I want to do that by giving you three headings. And if you're taking notes this morning, it'll all be there for you in the outline. But the first heading is let's look at a clear description of the breastplate. And I want to bring to your attention your first blank, if you are taking notes, physical characteristics of this piece of armor. Well, first of all, let me just tell you that the word in the original language, Ephesians 6, 14, of breastplate is the actual word thorax. Sounds pretty familiar to us in English, doesn't it? It refers to the thoracic cavity, the thorax, the torso. In, in today's usage, this would refer to anything specifically medically in the, in the thoracic cavity, mainly the heart, the lungs, the esophagus. Um, that's where cardiac and thoracic surgeons operate. That's why I served for four years. We would open up the chest cavity on a regular basis in order to either do bypass surgery or to remove a lobe of the lung. It's a cavernous cavity that contains heart, lungs, and the esophagus. And if any of those three organs are damaged to any degree, then you pro probably will not live. It's interesting to note, however, that in the time of the Roman army, this breastplate would not only cover the breast, but all the way down to the stomach, including the entire abdomen. If you look at pictures of the breastplate, you're not going to see them with those high, you know, coats that uh, some people wear these days. The coat comes to here, all right? It's like all the way down, right? The idea is all the way from the bottom of your larynx to the top of your of your waist is, is what would be covered by this breastplate. The major organs of the abdominal cavity would include the stomach, the liver, the gallbladder, the spleen, the kidneys, the small and large intestines, and the appendix. And so the Roman soldiers of this time would have had a, a breastplate that would have actually been a, a leather coat that was filled with metal rods. In some uh, cheaper armies, they would have hooves 
and horns of animals that were placed in this leather belt so that when the sword came upon them, it could not break through. Not only this, but this breastplate was worn on the front and the back. It was a whole coat of armor. There were some uh, more uh, well-off soldiers who would wear a coat of chain mail that would hang down even lower to protect them. It would protect the front, the sides, and the back. And so the idea is that wearing a, a, a breastplate would protect you from a fatal blow. The breastplate was designed to prevent any blow from the enemy's weapon from reaching the soldier's vital organs, particularly the heart. It would be difficult to apply a death blow on to the torso of a soldier wearing this type of body armor. A Roman soldier's breastplate is described by Polybius, an ancient uh, commentator as, quote, a bronze plate measuring a span every way which they wear on their breast and call a heart guard, close quote. So obviously the breastplate is to protect your heart. No serious-minded soldier would ever engage in war without this essential piece of armor. Without a breastplate on, you leave yourself vulnerable for the puncture of a blazing arrow the piercing of a well-thrown spear, or the penetration of a deadly sword thrusted in your direction. To go into battle without a breastplate would be taking a gutsy risk. It would be an act of stupidity. It would be literally never, it would literally never happen to the soldier who wanted to live to see another day. Instead, each soldier enlisted in the army would have taken the time and the care to be suited up properly with the whole armor in order to give himself the best chance of survival. Well, let me show you a couple of passages where we see the breastplate being used in Scripture. There are a number of them in the Old and New Testament. Maybe I'll just read them to you and you can look them up later. But that first passage that's given there is the famous Goliath David and Goliath passage of 1 Samuel chapter 17, where we're told that, that, Saul, that uh, Goliath had on a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. That coat of mail could also be translated as breastplate. It, it was the weight of that coat of mail or that breastplate was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And if you do the math on that, it tells us that that breastplate that Goliath wore weighed between 100 and 150 pounds. So his breastplate weighed what some of you ladies weigh, or some of the kids in the room weigh. Hopefully there's not a lot of men in here who are down at 100 pounds, but if you are, eat some steak and potatoes, all right? Uh, but the idea is that, that Goliath had on this huge breastplate that would have protected him, and yet in battle, you know, it was not successful, for David came and uh, was able to slay him by the providence of God and the power of God by simply using his slingshot and a stone. Another place where we see the word breastplate used in the Old Testament was when wicked King Ahaz attacked Ramoth Gilead, who uh, eventually uh, died in battle because it was Micaiah, the prophet of God, who had told him uh, not to go into battle. He went into battle anyway, tried to disguise himself. And here's what the text says in 1 Kings 22:34. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale of armor and the breastplate. And so we see there providentially God uh, still slayed this wicked king, uh, even though he had on a breastplate. We, we see the word again used in, uh, over in 2 Chronicles 26, when King Uzziah prepared 300,000 soldiers for battle. We're told that he prepared for them, for the army. He prepared shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, that's the word breastplate, bows and stones for slinging. Another place where the breastplate was used was in Nehemiah chapter 4. This would be after the exile when Nehemiah came back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. There was that time where he said that half of his servants would be working on construction and the other half of his servants would carry spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Again, the word breastplate as they were rebuilding the wall. They had to stand with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other in the sense of half the people were reconstructing the wall. Half the people used their breastplate and other forms of armor to be ready for battle. One last place, I want you to turn to this one if you will, Isaiah 59, 17. One last place in the Old Testament where the word breastplate is used. It's used in the sense of spiritual warfare and it describes the breastplate of the Lord himself. Isaiah 59, 17. Here we see it used like this. He put on righteousness as a breastplate 
and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is a picture of the Lord himself putting on the breastplate of his own righteousness to fight against any foe that would seek his destruction. And the Lord's breastplate, mind you, is impenetrable. His breastplate is made of perfect holiness, which is without equal. It is unsurpassed in glory, unparalleled in character, and unsurmountable in power. This is the breastplate of God. It is his righteous character that he puts on when he gets ready to do battle. Well, that's how we see the word breastplate used in the Old Testament. Let's see how it's used in the New Testament. There's only five usages in the entire New Testament of the word breastplate. One is here in our text, Ephesians 6, 14. The other four are used in two passages, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and in Revelation chapter 9. The Revelation passage talks about how there are locusts who put on these breastplates during the battle in the time of the tribulation. Uh, Revelation 9.9, they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. A little bit later in that passage, verse 17, it says they wore breastplates of the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. So there's another literal term to a breastplate being a defense in war. But the spiritual term, other than the Ephesians 6 passage in the New Testament, if you want to turn there, is 1 Thess, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. This shows us, again, the breastplate being used in the act of spiritual warfare. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and of love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so there we see, again, a couple of pieces of armor listed, the breastplate and the helmet, the breastplate here being referred to that of faith and love, the helmet would be the same, that of salvation. And so let's look at this a little bit more if we can and notice some possible meanings, your next blank, possible meaning based on inference. Let's just talk for a little bit here about what exactly is this breastplate of righteousness. And all I really want to say at this point is that in ancient Jewish thinking, the heart represented the mind and the will, whereas the gut or the bowels were considered the seat of emotions and feelings. So the heart was the mind and the will. The gut was emotions and feelings. That's, that's coming from the idea that when you get nervous, you kind of feel it in your gut. When you're having anxiety, you feel it down here. But your head and your heart, your will and your thinking ought to be tied together. And so uh, some commentators would say that if the breastplate covered both the thorax, where the heart is, and the abdomen, where your gut is, then this could be a challenge for the believer to protect both his mind and his emotions. But the breastplate, remember, covers the entire torso. And this is the place where Satan attacks, is it not? He attacks Christians in the mind and in the will, which would be the head and heart, and also in the emotions or in the gut. And so you need to know that these are the areas where Satan likes to attack. And there's really two ways you can understand how to defend these attacks of Satan. You can either do it as a charismatic which would be a little bit more dramatic, or you could do it conservatively by soaking your mind and your heart in the scriptures. Let me give you an example of a charismatic approach. How many of you guys remember the, the book that came out in 1990 called The Bondage Breaker? The Bondage Breaker, it was written by Neil Anderson, well-known charismatic, who I think intended well, but he used to attack in spiritual warfare like this. Let me tell you a story that he wrote in the book, quote, Janelle was a Christian woman with severe emotional problems who was brought to me by her elderly pastor. Janelle's fiance, Kurt, came with them. I said, Janelle, we can help you with your problems because there is a battle going on for your mind, which God has given us authority to win. As soon as I spoke these words, Janelle suddenly went catatonic. And she's stiff like this. She sat still as a stone, eyes glazed over, and was staring into space. Well, there's nothing to worry about. I've seen it before, I said. We're going to take authority over it, but it's important that you two, Kurt and the elderly pastor, affirm your right standing with God in order to prevent any transference of this demonic influence. When I turned to lead Kurt in prayer, he started to shake. He began confessing sin in his life, including the revelation that he and Janelle had been sleeping together. 
And all the while, Janelle sat motionless, totally blanked out. After we had prayed together about getting his life straight with God, I gave Kurt a sheet of paper with a prayer on it to read. As soon as Kurt began to read the prayer, Janelle snapped to life. She let out a menacing growl, then lashed out and slapped the paper out of Kurt's hands. I addressed the demonic influence in Janelle. In the name of Christ and by his authority, I bind you to that chair and I command you to sit there. Then I prayed, Lord, we declare our dependence on you, for apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Now, in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command Satan and his forces to release Janelle and to remain bound within her so that she will be free to obey God and her heavenly father. Suddenly, Janelle snapped out of her catatonic state. Do you remember anything we've done here? I asked her. No. What happened? She responded with a puzzled expression. It's nothing to worry about, I told her. Somehow Satan had gained a foothold in your life. But we would like you to walk through the steps to freedom in Christ. About an hour later, Janelle was free. Now that would be an example of a charismatic approach of utilizing these pieces of armor in order to do spiritual warfare. It would include things like addressing the devil face to face and commanding him to do certain things. It would be an overemphasis, if you would, on this commanding of authority of what Satan and his demons must do in that very moment in order to, to, to flex your spiritual muscle over Satan. Now, this is obviously an extreme story, but this type of story has been claimed over and over again by many charismatic Christians over the years as an application of spiritual warfare and a way to defeat Satan's hold on your mind and on your emotions. The question I'm asking is, is that the way we're to, we're to fight? Is that a true and healthy description of spiritual warfare? Or... I would like to, to recommend to you the conservative approach, as I call it. It does not diminish the reality or the seriousness of spiritual warfare. Instead of embracing the grandiose and mystical tactics revealed in this story, the conservative approach grounds itself in truth and saturates itself with the scripture. The truth is, Satan controls a worldly system and a sinful environment by which he tempts us to think wrong thoughts and to feel wrong emotions. The devil desperately wants to cloud our minds with false doctrine, false assumptions, and false conclusions in order to mislead us and to confuse us. Satan wants to influence our thinking and then elicit our emotions toward evil. He wants to change our convictions, our goals, and our loyalties. He then wants to replace our allegiance to the truth with affections for the world. He desires to snatch off the belt of truth and to sever the breastplate of righteousness. So the question is, how do we resist? And I would like to suggest to you that our protection against all the onslaughts of the flesh, the world, and the devil lie not in an exorcist or in an enchanted prayer but our protection against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil lies in us taking up the whole armor of God and standing firm in the strength of his might. This passage is teaching us how to do spiritual warfare. And it's a fight for the mind, and it's in a fight for the emotions, it's a fight for the will, and so we must understand what the belt of truth is, which we examined last week, and we must understand exactly what the, what the breastplate of righteousness is as well. And so with that in mind, let's look at the second heading, which gives us a few different views of this type of righteousness that's being described in Ephesians 6.14. The first kind could be inadequate righteousness. There's really nobody who would take that view, but let's just acknowledge what this view would be. The idea that we do have inadequate righteousness, or what is more pro probably more commonly called self-righteousness, right? The inadequate righteousness is the self-righteousness that each one of us have when we think that we are better than we really are. This kind of self-righteousness somehow has the idea that God owes us something, for all the nice things that we've done. And the argument is not whether or not you've done anything good, though I would argue you have not. 
the argument really is, can doing anything good ever make you righteous? Can one good act of common grace in your life somehow categorically make you righteous to which you can now respond by putting on your own self-righteousness? Well, obviously the Bible teaches otherwise. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not even one, not Martin Luther, not John Calvin, not George Whitfield, not Jonathan Edwards, not Charles Spurgeon, not Billy Graham. Right? There is none righteous. You don't have any righteousness of your own at all. That would be like saying if you did one good thing, that somehow now you're made righteous before God. That would be like saying now that you can read, you must be an Einstein. Or just because you can swing a bat, you're now Babe Ruth. Or just because you can write, you're now Hawthorne. Look, you're, just because you do something good doesn't mean you have some righteousness of your own. In fact, Jesus said it this way in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5, 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what he's saying is, is this group of people called the scribes and the Pharisees took God's law seriously, too seriously, to where they added to God's law their own law of human making and said, if you obey all of God's law, and you obey all of man's law, then certainly you'll be righteous, righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus says, you've you got to even surpass that. That's not even good enough. Even if you, you can't even keep it perfectly, but even if you did, you would have to do it beyond that in order to have the righteousness that, that God's talking about. Why is that? Because we're not talking about a self-righteousness, anything you could ever do. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Our best works are like filthy rags. The very best obedience, the, 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 the very change in your life where you're trying to go from being an immoral person to a moral person is still a failure if it's done in your own strength because your best effort at it is still a polluted garment. You cannot and you will never accomplish righteousness on your own, which is why we need B in your outline and imputed righteousness. An imputed righteousness, also called positional righteousness. Imputed righteousness means basically that Christ's righteousness becomes your righteousness. Imputed righteousness means that upon repentance and belief in Christ, individuals are forensically declared righteous. It's a judicial term similar to that of justification. God declares that while you are a sinner and you know you're a sinner, he declares that you're righteous. It's not by any righteousness of your own. It's by Christ's righteousness. Nevertheless, God declares that you are righteous. And he does that because you, if you're in Christ, are forgiven and your sins are washed away. And so God declares because of the holy sacrifice of his son that you are now righteous with an alien righteousness. Meaning it's otherworldly. It's not of this world. It's not self-righteousness. Imputed righteousness is an alien righteousness, a supernatural righteousness bestowed upon you at the time of salvation, saying that you now have a right standing before God. You are now right before God, not because of your works or your effort, but because of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. Possibly the most clear place to see this would be in Philippians chapter 3. Turn there with me, if you will. Philippians chapter 3, a very familiar text here about what Paul says about his own life, about getting rid of his own work and replacing it with Christ's work. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Here's the verse. And be found in him, not having a what righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul had every reason to brag. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born to the tribe of Benjamin. He had kept the law perfectly, as at least as perfect as any human could. And yet he realized that his best efforts were a filthy rag. They were all trash. They were all dung. They were all rubble. They did not add up to any value. In fact, they stunk in the sight of God. He says, your righteousness has no value here. 
And instead, it needs to be replaced with Christ's righteousness. Thus, the verse we read earlier in our worship in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was on the cross that God treated Christ as if he were a sinner. Jesus, who was sinless, bore our sin on his person on the cross. God placed all the sins of all the people in the world who would ever repent and believe on this sovereign substitute. And then God did something unfathomable. He took all the merit of Christ and put that perfect obedience, that unequaled equity, that faultless observance of the law. God put that in your account. Not only did he remove the sin, he replaced the sin with the full righteousness of Christ. You now have a bank account that's overflowing. You now have the ability to obey in the spirit in a way that truly honors God. And the righteous works you now pursue all stem from this righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to your account. The book of Romans discusses this in detail. We don't have time to look at it, but especially Romans 4 talks about how Abraham was believed in God and it was counted unto him as righteousness just by believing. There's no work being done here. It's the sovereign act of God by which he imputes to your account the righteousness of Christ based on simple belief in the gospel. So that's imputed righteousness. One other righteousness you need to see this morning is imparted righteousness. It's what the Puritans called it, imparted righteousness. Sometimes today we'll call it practical righteousness. The Puritans called this kind of practical righteousness imparted righteousness, which simply means the practical righteousness produced in our sanctification. Imputed righteousness is justification. Imparted or practical righteousness is our sanctification. Listen to the way Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it. Quote, the difference between imputed and imparted righteousness is that imputed righteousness is the beginning That is what makes me a Christian. That is the foundation. But God does not stop at that. He now brings to work in me the righteousness of his own son. He imparts it to me. He makes it a part of me. He puts it into me. This happens of necessity as the result of the rebirth, regeneration, and the new life. There is a new seed of life implanted in me. The seed has been put into me. That seed grows and develops This is what is meant by the idea of imparting righteousness. In other words, imputed righteousness is the seed of the gospel. Imparted righteousness is the seed growing and bearing fruit. And what that looks like is holiness in your own life. As you're pursuing the righteous deeds that God commands us to, part of this righteousness is what defends you from the onslaught of the devil. Imputed righteousness is justification. Imparted righteousness is sanctification. Imputed righteousness is the root. Imparted righteousness is the fruit. Imputed righteousness is positional. Imparted righteousness is practical. Imputed righteousness is Christ's perfect life placed into my account. Imparted righteousness is my spending my life pursuing perfection and living it out in my daily life. This is what God's called us to. It's been imputed to us. It must be imparted from us. We don't have time to turn there, but you've got to look at Zechariah 3, which gives an example of this illustrated with the priest or the prophet, the high priest uh, Joshua, who's standing before the Lord. He's being accused by Satan, and, and uh, this is what we read, Zechariah 3, 3. Now Joshua was standing there before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him, and now to him... Behold, I have taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's a picture of imputed righteousness. He takes the dirty clothing of Joshua away. He replaces it with the pure vestments. That's a picture of imputed righteousness. Two verses later, he says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. All that to say is it imputed righteousness, taking off the dirty garments and replacing them with the pure vestments of Christ, then leads to our obedience, which is practical righteousness, as he's then commanded to walk in all the ways of God and to keep his word. 
What I'm saying here is that righteousness is not only something God gives to you, it's something you have to pursue. It's something that you have to pursue. You say, Adam, in what sense? In a sanctification, obedience sense. That's why Proverbs 21, 21 says, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. That's why 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. That's why 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so we see in the Bible there are three different parts of righteousness. There are the impure, inadequate self-righteousness of our sinful condition. There is then the imputed form of Christ's righteousness and to the account of every believer. And then there is the practical or imparted righteousness of us living out our faith. Imputed righteousness is when God puts the armor on you. Imparted righteousness is when you hear the clang of the enemy onslaught coming in and you're defending it with the armor of God. When you're engaged in the battle, you're then performing practical righteousness, which also helps defend your enemy. This imputed righteousness must be put on you by God. Your grandmother's prayers will not give you imputed righteousness. Your parents' encouragement will not give you imputed righteousness. The preaching of the word of God in and of itself will not give you imputed righteousness. It must be the work of our sovereign God to open your mind to see that you are left defenseless without the imputation of Christ. But you have a responsibility to apply imparted righteousness. You have a responsibility to pursue holiness and to live a righteous life. And this works itself out a little bit in number three, a desire to live a righteous life. That's what we're talking about. God has called us not only to have the, having put on the righteousness of God, that we're to live that out. And let me just real quickly say there's a cost of indifference, the cost of indifference if you don't do that. If you're just apathetic today saying, well, what's the whole point? If I got Christ's imputed righteousness, I'm good to go, right? But why, why do I have to continue to fight the fight? Because God's word says that you leave yourself wide open to the wiles of the devil if you think that somehow just because you're saved by the grace of God that there's not still a battle to fight. And so here, if you're apathetic this morning, know there's a cost to the indifference of not wanting to pursue a righteous life. And here's just four of them real quick. There will be an absence of joy in your life. No matter what you do, no matter what you pursue, no matter how immoral you get, no matter what you try to find that will satisfy you, you will never find joy. In fact, it will lead to pain. It will lead to guilt. It will lead to depression. It will ruin your life. This is what happened to David after the sin he had with Bathsheba, who for a year could not function in a God-honoring way until he repented of his sins. And then in Psalm 51, 12, then he prayed, restore to me the what? The joy of my salvation. A, a second thing that happens when you're um, apathetic about putting on the breastplate of righteousness is that you will be ineffective and unfruitful. No matter what you try to do for the Lord, it will not count. It will be like treading water You'll be running on a treadmill of your own work. You'll be sinking in the mire of your own self-righteousness until you confess and repent so that then you can produce fruit that honors God. A third thing that will happen in your life is you will lose reward. You say, well, Adam, I thought I have on the imputed righteousness. How am I going to lose my reward? Well, 1 Corinthians 3 makes it pretty clear. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, but it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. It's talking there about a believer who, even though you will go to heaven and experience the imputed righteousness of Christ, in some way, you will suffer loss. And so the idea there is a very sobering challenge to us that if we do not put on the righteousness of Christ, we will lose reward. Number four, reproach on God's glory. There will be a reproach upon the glory of God 
which is why Philippians 2.15 says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are to be living differently. People ought to look at you and say, why do you talk differently? Why do you have different morality? Why do you spend your time and your money so differently? I don't even understand you because you're not like us. That's what ought to be saying in the world. But instead, I'm afraid too many Christians have become so worldly that you can't even tell a difference between a professing Christian in the workplace and a outright, an outright non-believer. And, and in doing that, we're bringing reproach upon the glory of God, which is why B in your outline, there's a call here to holiness. This idea of having put on the breastplate of righteousness is a call to holiness. Be holy for God is holy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you are to therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. First Peter 1, 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You say, well, Adam, I can't be holy. Well, that's why you have the imputed righteousness of Christ. But as a Christian, you are now to be pursuing righteousness and holy living in every moment of every day by what you watch, by what you listen to, by how you think, by how you respond to others, that you are to have righteous behavior in your life. And as you have been putting on that kind of righteousness, you ward off the attacks of the devil. Number two, renounce worldly passions and live a godly life. For the grace of God has been has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who were zealous for good works. That word good works there is the same word for righteousness. Are you zealous for righteousness? Having put off all of the impurity by the grace of God, are you zealous to be doing righteous works for a great God that we serve? That's part of what's meant here by having been put on the breastplate of righteousness. Number three, take every thought captive. You want to put on the breastplate of righteousness? We're called to protect our mind and our emotions, and part of the way you do that is by taking every thought captive. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is what God has called us to by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, that you defend off the blows of the enemy that try to get you to lower your guard and to compromise your life and that you have no conviction whatsoever. Instead, we're to take those thoughts captive by the work of Christ in us. And one last one, put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. God has called us to be righteous. God has called us to be pursuing righteous living. This is what God has called us to do as an individual, as a church, as a husband, as a wife, as a teenager, as a child. This is what God has called us to. And if you're on the wrong side of the fight this morning, I call you to repent of your sin, to turn from your wickedness, and to come to Christ. This day, I call you to look upon the sovereign substitute of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfectly righteous, who gave his life for you. It is time for you to choose sides. It is time for you to cross over from death to life. It is time for you to get into the Lord's army. If you're a believer this day, I call you to righteous living. I call you to put off the deeds of the flesh and to put on and pursue righteousness so far as you're able by the imputed righteousness that is first in you sovereignly, that now you have a responsibility to live that out. The seed 
of the gospel has been in your heart and it is to be growing and bearing fruit as a righteous life. It's supposed to encompass how we talk and how we live, how we interact, what we think about in every area of our life. And so maybe the take home from this message would be threefold. Number one, protect your mind and your emotions utilizing the breastplate of righteousness. You must clearly understand that you put off all inadequate or self-righteousness, that that's replaced with the imputed righteousness of Christ, and then that is imparted in your life as you protect your mind and emotions as you're engaging in the battle. That's partly what number two also says. Remember that Christ's righteousness in you is revealed in living a righteous life. Number three, live a righteous life And you will experience the freedom from sin and the joyful fellowship that you have with Christ. This is what God has called us to. It's an imputed righteousness. There you'll see a quote on the second side of your page that talks about basically the breastplate of righteousness protects us from God's wrath. But the breastplate of righteousness also protects us from the wiles of the devil. It is a breastplate that is necessary If you want to have life and if you want to win the battle that God will have you being engaged in today, open your eyes and see that he who is with us is greater than he who is with them. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for our sins, that we may be made righteous, that we may be made holy in your sight. And we confess this morning, God, that we have no righteousness of our own, that it's through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you now declare that we are righteous. As those who are righteous, may we be humble and may we be holy. May we pursue righteousness with everything that we have. May we be prepared to gird up our loins and to put on this breastplate of righteousness and to stand firm in the strength of your might. And so I pray, God, that on this day, you would awaken our sleeping spirit and you would allow us to engage in the battle and that we would be praying for the hearts of our spouses and our kids and our church, that we would be reverent in our worship, that we would be passionate in our witness for you. So, God, we pray that you would help us as a church to practice these things in light of your glory and of your grace is our chief commander, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You are the great I am. We humbly bow before you this day. We pray that you would suit us up, that you would put us in the fight, that we would honor you with the breastplate of righteousness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.